Start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance from This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening. Whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the event horizon where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And with us is writer, actor, producer, artist, Neil DeMonte. Welcome to the show. I forgot coffee lover. I'm just kidding. Thank you so much. And thank you both for having me on your show. Yeah, that's it's it's good to hear your voice again. We first had you on the show, I think, in 2015. That's how long we've been doing this show. Uh, and you were doing a Kickstarter for Clan of the Vein at the time. Yes, that's correct. I remember very well. Yeah, so you've been up to a lot of stuff since then. So what? Yeah, I've been pretty busy with, you know, knock on wood, God bless everybody for keeping me employed. So yeah, it's been pretty, pretty wonderful. So, so we're, we're seeing it everywhere. We read the comic and it's awesome. The uh, the okay. the the line work is amazing. The uh, the plot is just just dare I say pregnant with possibilities. Although you know vampires don't get Thank pregnant, you. so that was kind of a stupid metaphor, wasn't it? But even the coloring <laughs> just grabbed me. You know, it, it was it was that good. Well, if not to oh, really illustrate a point, it. what's a metaphor? <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me while I hit him with a fish. So what's your latest thing? What brings us to... Uh, what brings you to our door today? Yeah. Well, we, uh, let's see, since uh, since we've last spoken, um, I became a producer at a uh, Sony affiliate called Robot Awesome. And uh, I'm working with Jacob Silver, who's a producer, and also Brian Rogers, who's the Godzilla producer. So that just happened about a year and a half ago. I mean, about two years ago, to be safe. And you're dropping out a bunch. We got to interrupt you here because your signal is kind of poor. And I'm wondering if maybe your mom's Wi-Fi isn't the greatest. Uh, we love you good, when actually. we hang on your every word. But when people can't tell that robots are awesome, that's a problem. Definitely. Can you, let's see. Yeah, the Wi-Fi here is pretty good, actually. It's like lightning fast. Huh. Okay. Yeah, can, well, you, can you just do that let's whole... Take it, take it from the top. Maybe slow down a little. Sure, no problem. Um, where do you want me to? Do you want to ask a question? And I'll go ahead and just like well, the, jump in and yeah, say what else. Yeah, why don't you do else. that? So, so what are you doing now? 
Well, uh, since we've last, since I've well, since I've last been on your show, um, about a year and a half ago, I became a producer with a company called Robots of Awesome, which is a Sony affiliate. We're located on the Sony lot, and right now I'm working with Jacob Silver and Brian Rogers, who's the Godzilla producer, and we're optioning properties to make into movies and TV shows. So I've been really busy with that, and also working as a director. I still work as an artist, but I've kind of decided to take a different uh, approach toward things too, and start to kind of see what the, you know, basically I wanted to see what the challenge would be to be a director and be a producer. So I decided to take that route right now. Well, being an artist certainly informs your work as a director, though. Oh, yes, very much. You have, a, you have an advantage. You can see things in your head the way other directors cannot. Yes, it, it actually, it's, a, it's definitely a help. I mean, because when you go into a certain, when you go into situations, you can see everything. Like you said, you kind of picture everything in your head and can do the visual process with, and you could do it on your own with that, with, you know, obviously working with collaborators too. But, um, since I had so much training as a comic book artist and as a storyboard artist, now it's a matter of being able to take all the stuff that I draw in two dimensions and seeing if I can get it up on a screen in three dimensions. So it's, it's a little, like it was a challenge because the first thing I did was a TV series called front men, which is coming out pretty soon. It's a streaming platform TV series. And, uh, we so it was. I remember the very first thing that I directed too. Uh, it, it was. It, it's a little more complicated than than, you, than it looks like. Um, I have a lot of respect for directors now, because when I first did it, and I saw the rough cut, things weren't matching up. And then we brought on a director of photography, who is the person who basically is the one who shoots everything that the director you know, tells them to to do. Basically, um, they came on, and um, he gave me a lot of good advice. He said, whenever you have something happening in, at the end of one scene, it's got to carry over into the next scene. And like for example, if you see somebody walking off the screen to the left, you've got to have them reappearing on the right, where it looks like they teleported, and they're just kind of there talking to someone. So I was like, oh, oh the, wow, I didn't think about that. The camera so things line. Like that. The camera line. Right. <laughs> And uh, working after working now as, as a director, and I've done I've directed a couple of things since then, and I've learned a lot from a lot of the, the uh, DPs that I work with, which is short for director of photography. Um, they really taught me a lot about how to transition from one scene to the next, and um, so you can't leave somebody hanging. If someone's doing something in one scene, you've got to make sure they're doing that same thing in the next scene, or it just looks kind of awful and looks it doesn't fit with the continuity. So because um, it all shows up when you're editing it, then you when you watch something being put together, you're like, oh, I see, I see where all the mistakes are. So luckily, we went back and corrected what I'd previously done. Then we re- went back and reshot a couple of things two or three times, and we came back and we're like, okay, now we have something cohesive. So it was a very big learning process. But uh, you know, it, it's like after I've been doing it, now, I feel more comfortable doing it now, and it, it just took a little bit of time getting used to because now that I realize what directors go through, I have even more respect for them um, because they're in charge of everything but the catering. Like while they're shooting the scene, they've got like you know assistants coming up to them left and right and saying, "What do you think about this color combination for this co- for this character's uh, outfit that they're wearing?" You've got to make a decision on that how about this character's bedroom does, does everything work in this bedroom does this color work with this character's personality is this car um this car that this character drives is this car like part of their per- an extension of their personality so you have to think of every single thing except for the catering so it's a lot of work and it's uh, but it's a lot of fun too it's, it's like i said it's very challenging and um when you see when you're working with people who you know, obviously know what they're doing that helps make your life a lot easier too so it's kind of working in collaboration with with everyone around you so yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun actually. I've been learning a lot, and that's been um, even as a producer now too. It's a first time for me as a producer. So, in the last year and a half, I've learned a lot. So I just kind of keep my mouth shut, nod, smile a lot, and just take take everybody's information in, and uh, you know pick up the lingo and make sure everything gets done properly. I think it was Cecil. 
I think about a year and a half ago, we did see a credit for you on uh, the Jingle Jingle Trail. Yes. Mm-hmm. We've got a we've got a resident Santa here at uh, Sci-Fi Radio who's got to see that. <laughs> oh no, kidding! That's awesome. Please, yes, definitely spread the word. That was a fun project too. Cause that was the first children's uh, children's family oriented thing that I've done. Usually, most of the stuff I get called for is boobs and blood. I mean, let's face it. So um, I took the, I was like, oh, this will be a challenging thing to do, and see if I can not interject that kind of stuff into a children's slash family film and so I can make it go and it was a pleasure I actually had a lot of fun doing it we uh like the only difficult thing we it was we were shooting that Malibu, Malibu Creek State Park now, that's a public park they filmed the very first episode of the Incredible Hulk TV series actually there at the rock pools and people go climbing up there too but because it's a public area and it was 110 111 degrees when we were oh shooting it for gosh. that three-day period over there um, we had a park ranger assigned to us, and the park ranger specifically said this is a public park, so he can only pause people from entering and like walking past you while we shoot the scene, then he's going to have to let them through. So we, even though we – everyone was being very polite and helping us out quite a bit, but like you can – you know, it, it's funny because when you're watching – the kids are supposed to be like, you know, like alone on these hiking trails when they run into Santa Claus on his day off. And, um, and there's a lot of people in the people background like, jumping off the waterfalls and splashing and making noises and drinking. So it, was, <laughs> so it was a little bit challenging to kind of work around all the people that were kind of coming through the area. So we tried our best with it, and it came out looking really good. Yeah, that uh, I, w- I was looking at the title for it, and I thought, oh, man, this just screams of low budget. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, but uh, sometimes the small stories are the best ones. Yeah, because it's a challenge whenever you have... Um, Whenever you have a big budget and uh, you have a lot of money behind things, things tend to move a lot smoother. When you're working with a smaller budget, you know, it's, it makes things a little more complicated because everybody has to be on top of their game like immediately. There's no room for like leeway. So if you, have, like, if you have downtime for half an hour, you want to still keep shooting stuff. To make sure I was getting like the you know like sound design, background noises, uh, rehearsing with the actors. So you don't really have time to kind of take a break. Um, on bigger budget stuff, you actually have the op- you actually have the opportunity and and uh, the availability to do something like that. Smaller budget stuff, you if you have the park reserved in your area for three days, you have to make the most of it. So we never broke early. We were always like you know if we if we happen to end the day the day shooting schedule early, I would just go ahead and start shooting more stuff until we're until we're out of here at five o'clock until they you know kick us out. So you want to make sure to always you just keep shooting because you can always use that stuff in footage and uh, in the editing booth when it's all being put together. You can you know take little bits and pieces and put them all together so it makes a really nice syncopation of everything that you've shot. That's a really uh, strong contrast between uh, small budget and large budget. I hadn't realized. Oh, yeah. I hadn't realized. Yeah, it's uh that's what makes it that, but that's what that's what keeps it that's what keeps everything very fresh and very interesting. I think when you're when you have a bigger budget, things are planned out a lot more. Although there are the, there are those what's called those happy accidents where you'll be you'll get to the set one day and you'll see something and be like, "Oh, this is a great shot for something. Let's shoot, let's shoot this." And when you're on a smaller when you're on a smaller budget, though, it's it's you know like you only have a limited amount of time to like to get everybody to do everything in, in like that one day. You can't really bleed over into another day. But you got to make the most of your time. But you know, but listen, when you do it though too, and you kind of go in your area and you kind of go looking around and scouting everything, you kind of see the, you know, like I'm I'm like whenever I direct things, I try to make everything look very much like comic book panels, so they're very kinetic and they're always moving. And you know, and I try to use the entire widescreen format of the screen that way that uh i don't want to make it look too much like a tv because tv when you shoot something in a tv ratio everything's kind of condensed and like you know right in front of your eyes the whole time when you're shooting widescreen when like we were shooting jingle trails at malibu malibu creek state park 
everything, you have these big sweeping vistas. So why not take all that in? It's, it's nice to kind of capture all these vistas and have the camera kind of whip through everything like really slowly and pan through, then slowly land on your characters to show you the whole scope and the scale of the entire area. And um, that was something very challenging for me to do too, because um, a lot of times I'll have the actors say, like I'll tell them, we're going to shoot, we're going to be shooting this area. Let's go ahead and rehearse it. Then I'll go with the director of photography and walk around them while we're rehearsing, and I'll see, okay, maybe I want to shoot them through the trees here, and maybe like do a low angle here to catch them for a power shot. So it's really kind of fun taking in, like I want the environment to be a character too. So that's whenever I direct things, I kind of just don't want people to be like in like a room. I like to have the room be a character too. So you can do things by changing the wallpaper, changing the colors, putting things in the room to tell their own story as well. So it almost acts like as, as a, a subtext as to what's, what the characters are doing in the foreground. So are you getting the hang of, of uh, the whole camera in the space concept as contrasted to uh, designing a, a static panel that shows this vista? I think he just said that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it sounds like you are. But, uh, you know, was that transition difficult when you, when you first encountered it? Oh, yeah. It was really difficult because you have to kind of really think about what's in the environment and how, and how do characters react to it. Like, I like – if you ever watched, like, you know, like, like for example, like Chevy Chase films, like Seems Like Old Times and everything, you'll see little things in the background. Or even like the old uh, – the French director Jacques, Jacques Tati, mm-hmm. he always had things in the background that would – cater to the scene like you'll have like two people talking that a raven will smack into a window and fall off fall off in the background <laughs> somewhere <laughs> that take that that it kind of has a little element of comedy while you're having two people do a dramatic scene like in the foreground so i like things like that i like when when i'm shooting stuff to always make sure that like the like the wallpaper will be like a certain character so like um this always gives people something to look at whenever you're shooting scenes and i think because yeah it's, it's nice to having the characters in the foreground obviously doing their jobs but Having things in the background that kind of cater to it makes it really funny, and um, yeah, but there's limits uh, to the, that. There's the old joke that there's the old joke where the the punchline is she drank the ink. I mean, upstaging uh, happens, and it, it it still happens even though we're not on a stage. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it's uh, it's always fun to kind of pull those little funny things that happen when you're filming stuff because as you kind of rehearse the actors and you're kind of having the camera moving around to catch them in the performance. You might like the camera might want to catch something in the background or catch something that somebody's wearing, so that it just adds something to the scene, because it's you know like whenever you have people like like there's that oh that, that wonderful opening scene of Jaws is a good example, you know Roy Scheider comes in the police station and he's getting interrupted by everybody in the station. All he wants to do is get to his typewriter and type up the police report, and um, all these little interactions it, it makes you and the camera is actually following him around, so it's almost like you're like almost like a visitor in the police station catching all of this while it's happening, instead of it just being like locked away in the corner and watching everybody act in front of you. So I like stuff like that. I like the character, the, the uh, camera to almost become a character in the scene while it's actually like, you know, following people around. So it gives, it gives the audience a feel of actually being in the scene instead of just watching everything on the side. Steady Cam must love you. Yeah, it's, it, it's good for certain things. And like, you know, um, there's a, I call it shaky cam. That's when people do like the uh, handheld yeah, stuff. Sometimes uh-huh. I like it. Sometimes I don't. It's got to be warranted though for the for the shot. But uh, yeah, steady cams are great because I love being able to. I like actors to act because I, I start off as an actor and I like you know when when some whenever someone yells cut when you're doing your scene and you're you're in the emotional state of it, you've got to go when they reset the cameras to move it to another location to catch your performance. You've got to rebuild up all that tension again. So I kind of like just kind of having the camera like 
right there, right there, watching the actors do their scene. I try to have the have like a wide, and shoot everybody doing their scene, doing a slow creep in, and then like you know, then when they're done doing everything, then we cut, then we cut back to close ups and uh, you know, over the shoulders and uh, singles on people. But I like because I, I start off by doing plays, and when you're doing plays, you have to do everything in one big take. So I've always been a fan of letting actors just kind of act, and just say, okay, here, do it. And then if I have any suggestions, we'll go on, we'll go in for like close ups and everything too. But it seems like when they when you let them. If you have good actors and you trust them and you've been working with them for a while, it's really interesting to kind of let them play the whole thing out at first. And you get the most beautiful take sometimes where, like, you know, you might have to do a quick cutaway here and there, but the take is so beautiful that, you know, the performances are there, the emotions there, the anger, the hatred, whatever they may be going through. It's so emotional and so raw and so real. It's nice to have them do that in one big take. So it feels like you're watching it, like, right happening right in front of you. And then, you, you know, then you can always go back and cut away to all the uh, insert shots that you might need to cover that scene. So you do a master shot first and then do go in and go do uh, pickups and close-ups and whatever. But at least they oh, yeah. they've had at least one <laughs> one uh, iteration of, of 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 living through the scene and they have something to recreate rather than having to create it fresh and then create it again. Right, cuz sometimes the sometimes they have, when you have really good actors they can do it all the time. And I mean all actors are, you know, like they, they just have to kind of build up that emotional state again. So if you have somebody crying in a scene and delivering a really big chunk of dialogue, you kind of want to get them on that one shot and just let them play it out. I think when you sometimes cut them off too quickly and say, okay, let's pick this up on this line and reset the camera, I think the actors kind of get irritated because like you want to let them have that space to be who they are and be honest with you. And I like working with honest actors. Like they're very, like when you just kind of let them do their thing and kind of getting their face and cutting just to get the shot. And I think it's very important to do a master shot and just let them all play the whole thing out. Yeah, that's the thing that uh, a lot of people don't realize about movies. You know, I mean, even the simple ones, you don't, you don't shoot everything in the, in the same sequence. You see it in the final edit. You know, you, think, do, you think, do all your lo- location stuff in one place. And I think the audiences are a little more savvy about editing than they used to be. You think? Oh, no. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah catch I guess you they now. are. I think, I I think, act, I think directors need to all take acting classes. That's what, it, you know, so they have some idea of what they're commanding. Yeah, I think yeah, that's no argument here. I agree with you. That's probably uh, what's giving you the insights that you have is that you've been on the other side of the lens. Yeah, it's been it's been really. Uh, I think that's what's been helping a lot too, because you kind of like when you watch someone do a thing on camera, you know, you can let them let, let them do their take the first time, and then you can say, okay, great, that was that was awesome. Let's try this now. Let's like uh, I'm very big on saying, okay, like uh, if you hit a certain line, maybe like flinch your face, move, do a little bit something with your eyes, do something with your hands. Um, even, even too, like, uh, I even like to, if we have time, I like doing a take where it's all, where it's all just like, you know, off page, off, off page. I'll say, okay, you guys have the script. You memorize the script. That's great. Now I'd like you to kind of just do a take where you both just kind of say whatever you want to say. Just like, you know what the, you know what the scene's happening. You know what the story is. You know what your motivation is and what your partner's motivation is. So give me some acting and reacting of what, of who you're, of what you're doing with your, with your partner. And you'll go ahead and say all action. And sometimes those are the takes that actually make it into the final cut because they're, it's so real and so raw. I don't really I try not to hold it to unless there's some very important lines or very basic elements in the script that need to be brought across to to convey to the to the audience. I like having actors do an actual take where they just improvise the whole thing. I think improv is a very big thing and a very important thing that actually is very honest and keeps everybody focused too. So and it, plus you have fun with it too. If you have a good grasp of what the script is telling you and what your character is doing, I think doing an improv take is great because most of the time those lines actually pop up out of the screen in the final in the final edit. And uh, yeah, and the audience usually responds to that very well. 
I think one of the great things about that is that you get something larger than what you imagined. It's you know, true. It's, yeah, it's, very much. It goes beyond what your what your original concept was, and expands on it, and you get something beyond what you you hoped for. It does, and it, it, there's something very magical about that, which I love, because you're not expecting it. Like when you when you read a script as a director, you break things down, saying, "Okay, we're going to cover this amount of dialogue in this shot, and this amount of dialogue in this shot, and then we'll piece it together." But when you do these when you do these improvised takes, I swear, if you have good actors. And they have and they have that energy behind it. Sometimes the most amazing things just kind of happen off camera. Um, well, but that you happen to wind up catching, and that's like, wow, that was so beautiful. I would have never thought about that, and, and it just kind of works. So you just have to when you're editing it, you, and you work with a good editor, they can clip those things in there and make it work along with what you we do everything when you're when they're putting together with the final piece. That's why it's good to have a couple of different takes where you're, you know, just trying a couple of different things and seeing how it all works together. And it, you know, when you put it together, it just looks it just looks fantastic when it's finally all done. I think Mel Brooks did a lot of that. Some of the some of those improv takes wound up as classics. Oh, they were genius! I got that guy's that guy's that guy's a oh my god, unbelievable genius, especially with his comedy. Yeah, it's how he uh, how he weaves it back and forth into his uh, into his filmmaking. I mean, High Anxiety was was a masterclass in reserved comedy. Mm-hmm. I and love that not movie. Reserved, oh you don't you don't see a lot of reserved from them from Mel Brooks. To be yeah, honest. that's true. That's true. But it was. Uh, I mean, it was clear that he had uh, he had paid very close attention to what Alfred Hitchcock had done. Well, that was the point. It was a Hitchcock mm-hmm. send up. Well, and, yeah. And during Hitchcock's lifetime, I think uh, who knows what he uh-huh. thought of it, but <laughs> either had to love it or hate it. No, no middle ground. So yeah, I think Hitchcock. Yeah, I think Hitchcock, if I'm not mistaken, I think he he directed things in such a way where that if the editor tried to go back and cut something out, they couldn't do it. Yep. Like yep. Exactly what he much. wanted. He 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 had a very clear vision. That man. It, it was said of it was said of Hitchcock that he designed the whole film basically before it ever went to camera, and uh, for him, the actual shooting of the film was perfunctory, <laughs> because as far as he was concerned, the film was done. It probably frustrated the heck out of out of his the rest of the artists, but he didn't regard them as artists. They were just you know figures were, to do his bidding, and if they couldn't cope with that, they didn't work for him. Exactly. So, what are you working on now? Oh, before you ask him oh. that, I I went and looked ahead in IMDb and. You know, saw Clan of the Vein as an upcoming project. Is there something you want to tell us about that? Yeah, well, what's, what the basic consensus was with the project was it's very expensive. It's very ambitious for a first-time yeah. project. So we did – what we did was Neo and I actually did the comic book to kind of do it as a smaller version of what the film would be. So um, we're, what we're doing now is we're doing – we had like every every producer we met said we love this project. It looks great. The, all these things can be made in action figures and toys. It's just really expensive. So what you guys – so you guys have the – you guys basically have the Chronicles of Riddick version. Give us a pitch black version of it. I said, okay, well, how about we do this? How how we do this about a couple of bad guys, a couple of the good guys. Like it all takes place in in McBain's in McBain's was our main character in McBain's castle. We have an adventure take place there. We have like ten, you know, like a you know, like let's say a monster, you know, three bad guys, a bunch of sorry, a couple of bad guys, a couple of good guys. We have everything take place in one location. They love the idea. So right now we're putting a script together for that, 
And then once that's done, um, since I've directed a couple of short films and I'm working on a feature right now that I'm putting together with my friend Gabby, who produced Whiplash, I want to get that mm. shot first. So I'm hoping by the time that's done, we can I can we'll have a script ready for uh, for for a smaller version of Clown of the Vein to give give them the pitch black version of it, and then we can hopefully go ahead and shoot that once everything's ready to go. So um, yeah, so we're just like busy putting all that together right now, just getting everyone's schedules together because I gotta see what Neo's schedule is like um, to do the. Uh, to to write a, uh, I can work with them and put together like a smaller a smaller budgeted version of that where everything takes place in the castle, and uh, yeah, because that's kind of what we did. Like I was building up my credits and he was building up his credits, and hopefully we'll we'll have everything come together now. Now that I became a producer at Sony, I'm like okay, well now let's get our projects going. So let me do a couple of projects with Sony, get get my name on board on a couple of things we're doing with them, do some bigger budgeted stuff little by little, then build up my credits, then I can go ahead and direct a feature film. And I'd like to actually direct, I actually would like to direct a Clown of the Vein feature film, but I want to get at least one big, a bigger feature under my belt right now, which is why I'm been busy doing all this stuff with Sony. Yeah, it's that, pr- that on-the-job practice, yeah. yeah, is all important. Yeah, everything's, I'm sorry, sir? Uh, all that on-the-job on practice is all important. You know, yeah, and, you gotta have the uh, credits are more credits are worth more than money, honestly, in this business. Is from what I've been seeing. So when people see that you've been a producer on a couple of films that are like you know like you know three to five million dollar budgets, as a first time producer, that's a good thing. That's what I've been really focused on right now. Then I can be okay, great. I produced a couple of these films. I've acted. I've got my SAG card. I'm in the PGA. I'm in the Producers Guild. I want to direct this film, and they'll more than likely give you the chance of doing it. So you just have to kind of you know back it up with all your credits. It's almost like having like it's like playing the stock market. You've got to have a you've got to have a nice bunch of credits behind you that are that are with like name people and if people you know people vouch for you and support you they'll totally they'll totally back you up in getting a project going and uh yeah it's it's a like i said it's a it's a very it's a very um, it's very fun business but it's also very you know it's rewarding but it is challenging there's uh you know you have to kind of get all these things like when people have taken chances on first-time directors who have never done anything, and then things usually fall apart during the filmmaking process. I've seen it happen with people who've gotten $10 million to, to do a film. And then when the director gets on set the first day, they, everyone starts freaking out because they've, they've never directed anything except, except for plays. And then it all starts coming together. Once they start putting the film together, they start going, oh my God, what are we going to do? The director doesn't know what he's doing, and he's new, and he's scared, and that makes everybody else scared. And then um, that's usually when I get a phone call. <laughs> say, hey, can yeah. you come help us with this thing? Yeah, it's like I feel like Michael Madsen from the Species movie. If you know, if you ever seen that, he just goes, "Yeah, well, if I'm getting a phone call, something bad happened." Yeah. I'm like, yeah, this happens quite a bit on my end. If I get a phone call, I know they, they got to get it done in two days, and it's got to get done quick, and that's why I'm getting hired for it. So, um, yeah, so it's so it's you know because I'm very calm when it comes to I've been, I've been working on movies for so long now that it's like I'm not scared. I just kind of will get this. We need to address some issues. Let's get this thing fixed. And part of the problem, part of the, this, the problem solving thing, is finding out what everybody's strengths are, and what all their weaknesses are. So if you say, you know, if you get a couple people who are very strong in certain areas, you assign them to do these tasks, and then like say, okay, get the proper people underneath you. And if you can't find them, I will. I will be. I will, we just want to get this thing moving. We have to work as a family to make this baby happen. So let's get let's get on top of this. And once you when you when you're calm. It calms everybody else down. You don't see everybody like chain smoking cigarettes, you know, <laughs> around you the whole right, time. Right, right. And uh, and they're you know chewing their fingernails off. So it's it's just a matter of being able to to relate to people. I think a lot of it's a, it's a very people uh, people friendly business. You have to be able to communicate and communicate your ideas well without stepping on people's toes and getting everybody angry because you know there's a lot of egos. And like um, if you're someone who doesn't have an ego, you've got to make sure you cater to other people's egos and make sure you're like okay, well, what do I need to make you work better? Tell me. 
we need to get the scene done. And if you're if you're not having if you're if if, if an actor is having a problem with somebody on set, then you've got to go there and talk with them and say, okay, great, I understand what you're saying. Let's fix the problem. Why don't we shoot one of these things your way? We'll do it my way first, and we'll do one. We'll do one take with uh, your way. Well, how's that work? And we'll, then that's how you kind of you know fix the problem a lot of the time. You just have to address everybody, and make sure you're very clear with your communication, and it usually t- tends to work out pretty well after that. I've got nothing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh no. It was just, we could. We could. We could. This is just like a master class in filmmaking it and really directing. Is. It really is. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So the uh, comic you. book is kind of your your storyboard, you know, and you've been a storyboard artist so long that you know it just you just cranked it out and you could just just lift lift the whole thing into the next movie. Yeah, I'm because that's kind of like what. Uh, thank you. That's what I'm planning on doing. Um, like so, like uh, this kind of like off the record. We're talking about them, but a very close friend of mine. His name is Scott Spear. He's a director friend of mine. I work with him quite a bit, and I've storyboarded some things with him. So he actually and I are both going to be hopefully doing a project together that we're just putting together right now. We're just going to start. Do, we're just doing some camera testing and things like that to see how things move and stuff. And he's a, he's a really good guy. He's always been very supportive of me, and he was like, I really want to see you direct like a feature film. So he's, we're actually working on putting something together right now with that, and I'm gonna. Once we get that done, he's got more clout than I do, clearly, and he's a really great guy. knows what he's doing, very talented, a really good storyteller. So when we get this put together and get the script done, put the package together, I'm going to bring it to um, everyone at Sony and see if Scott and I can do this together. That'd be awesome. So I think it's going to be a fun – thank you. I think that's going to be a pretty fun project. It's very – it's going to be a – it's going to be cool. It's – um, it's we're just – without giving too much away, we're going to try doing stuff like – um. I can't, I can't say without giving something away. We're going to try doing something very unique without using a lot of director or photography tricks to make things work, if, that, if okay. that's the best way I can describe then it. Then we being... look forward to having a look at that. Um, are, when are we going to see the comic book? I mean, might as well, you know, start with the, start at the beginning. Well, the, co- the, uh, the preview issue came out, and it actually was on Teen Wolf. If, you ever, if, you're, if you're a Teen Wolf fan, it's been on the episodes of uh, – it was on season five and season six of Teen Wolf in oh. Styles' bedroom. They used a lot of the comic book artwork in that. <laughs> and it was also in the film Cooties. In Elijah Wood's bedroom in that film, you can see a lot of the Clan of the Vein artwork in that film. That actually helped us get a lot of views, by the way, because that- a lot of the, the Cooties cast and the uh, um, – Teen Wolf cast were, were pimping out quite a bit online. We sold out at Comic-Con. We just we, we only had enough money to do a preview issue, which is the first half of the issue. So right now I'm doing I'm doing okay. So I'm actually – I financed the second half of the issue, which is being computer-colored and lettered right now. It should be – so the, it's a 24-page – it's basically a 24-page one-shot. But the we're going to actually base of the feature film, if everything goes good, off of that one-shot. But just adding a bunch of flashback scenes into it that tell our, our main character's past. And give a background as to what's going on. So we want to get that done before the end of the year and have that ready to go. Then I can bring that together in the package with the with the script and bring it to everyone over at Sony and say, "Hey, can we do this?" And um, it's hopefully it'll, it'll all work out. But yeah, but the uh, the comic book like, should be done within, within the next couple of months. We're just like we're, the colorists we're doing. You know, you've seen his work. I refuse to work with anybody but Jason Walton. That's it. That guy's my guy. He's amazing. He's more expensive, but I mean, look at what you get. I mean, it looks better than oh, a yeah. comic book. Oh yeah, and, it sure uh, does. And I'm very Thank you. I'm very big on if the front cover looks that good, the inside has to look as good as the front cover. Because let's face it, how many times have you opened up a comic book where the front cover looks amazing, and then you look at the inside, and you're like, eh, that's nice, whatever. It's like the pers- it just looks terrible on the inside, and I I just refuse to have my work looked at like that. Or so 
Or they uh, just, they do the covers like way in advance of when the comic book is even written. And it's nothing the, to do with it. And the cover's got nothing to do with the book. Yeah. You know, that's that's, that's a huge that happens too. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'm very I'm kinda like very militant about having the inside look as good. Uh, you know, because if somebody goes, Hey, this guy worked on Star Wars and your comic book doesn't look as look as good as that, then like you shouldn't be in the business. I'm sorry. It's just give up. Because like you need to make it look as good and put your heart and soul into it. Like I've never half assed anything in my life and I refuse to. So, like, if someone has $100 to pay me to do something, you will get the best $100 I can possibly give you. I will, you know, I just have a good work ethic. So I'm not going to give, I'm not going to give readers of my work a half-assed comic book. I'm just not going to do it. And I've seen the colorists out there. A lot of people are not that great. They just, it's, they just, they do things that are very passable. I'm not a passable kind of guy. It's either A plus or that's it. I don't, I don't want to do it. So when I made, when that front cover came back, looking the way it did, I'm like, okay, the whole inside of the book, every panel has to look like that. And I killed myself to make it happen. I mean, my God, it was, but it was fun though. I had a great time. It was like the best thing I've ever drawn. And like everything I've drawn since then has just not been of that caliber because I, I literally gave, I feel like I had a kid in a way. It was like, that was like my heart and soul into that comic book. So I, you know, I finished all the pencils and the digital inks and everything too. So now it's just being computer colored. But right now our colors is very busy. So he's doing like a page at a time and like knocking everything out. But when I get stuff back, it's like the most amazing thing in the world. A lot of the times I'll be at the gym on the treadmill and he'll send me the text message um, or it'll come through as an email at like, uh, you know, when I'm on the treadmill like late at night. And um, he'll go, hey, man, I just finished up your page. And I'll make the mistake of opening it. Then I go, oh, my God. And I freak out, slide off the treadmill, hit myself against the wall. And I have to go, Oops. Every time. And then I have to stop, run home so I can go look at it on my laptop to see it all nice and big. It's the most – like that guy – yeah, his name's Jason Walton. He's he's got a company called Myriad Studios um, up in Canada. That guy, I don't know what he's a freak. He's an he's so amazing that I I look at stuff. He's the only comic book artist I've seen that can bounce light. So if you have a character like in an environment, he takes all the surrounding elements and bounces the light and the colors off the characters so they actually look like they're in their environments. And he goes Ooh. through and he adds like detail to leaves and my gosh, I, he just when I get things back from him, it's always like it looks better than like it looks better than what I thought it was going to be in my head. And, um, is he a photographer so like, yeah. or something? Because wow, that just just that's way beyond uh, you know what what you, we normally see see in comics. Thank you, and I appreciate you all for for like noticing that too. I mean, he puts he puts a lot of time into it, but he's so he's just so good at what he does. I think it's all the death metal that he and I listen to. <laughs> you know, death it, death metal will will affect your brain in a good way. Yeah, except when you're you know, ricocheting off the treadmill at 100 miles an hour. But, uh, <laughs> Just, the, uh, you know what? You know what? Pad your amazing. butt and keep walking. <laughs> exactly. So I might have an aneurysm, but hey, this work looks great. Um, <laughs> now take me to my doctor. But, but yeah, it's, it's every time I'll be on the treadmill, I'll get this email from him and I'll open up and go, oh my God. And I flip out and I've got to run home to take a look at it. So yeah, we've got, I think we've only got a couple more pages left of color. So like once we have everything ready to go, I'll, I'll send it over to Neo. Then he can put it like in the... Uh, put them up in the books and everything, then people can order the books online. And um, the, what I'll start doing is too, like, uh, you know, when the, when the books are ready too, like when, the, like we have all these horror conventions, like Monster Palooza and stuff, mm -hmm. I usually will sell the books over there and sign them for people and everything, which is pretty cool. So that, that's always, I think getting, getting the, that particular book, you know, people at a comic convention are not really going to be all that interested, but horror, horror fans and like people who are into like, you know, horrors and thrillers and stuff like that too, would really would love that kind of stuff. So even though we have action stuff, it's, you know, um, it's not really geared towards like the superhero market, which I, which is why I don't think it would sell all that well at comic conventions. But horror conventions would love stuff like that. So um, yeah, we're hoping to have everything ready by the end of the year, and then like uh, next year, when, once everything's ready, I can do a big push on it and get it ready to go. Well, and you'll come talk to us, won't you? 
Oh, of course. In fact, once but once that happens, so I'll make sure you all have a, a finished 24-page graphic novel. We're gonna try to. I'm gonna try to see if I can do a mini poster that goes along with it too that you can pull out of the book. But I want to make sure it doesn't get like bent too much. Um, we're working on all of that too, just to make it look really, like a really cool bound book. But yeah, Neo did a pretty cool, pretty cool job too. What we did was we we did the first illustrated screenplay for it. We did it kind of like the Matrix. Mm. So. Because, you know, most people in Hollywood don't read scripts anyway. They'll just kind of look at like a, an outline and a lookbook and um, like a one sheet, which is a summary of your entire script from beginning to end on one sheet of paper. And then if they like that, they'll go back and read the script. So like Neo and I took that into account. So he was a genius. He went he went and took all the – I storyboarded the entire film out, which is the bigger the bigger budgeted version. And um, the script is on the left-hand side. But if you're too lazy to read the script, the right-hand side plays the whole thing out. Um, in visuals with concept art, comic book pages, um, storyboards, and like and like artwork. So like, and it's got the speech bubbles too. So if you if you don't want to read the script, you can look at the whole right side of it, and it's a whole visual presentation, like kind of like how they sold the Matrix, basically. And I storyboarded like literally every frame of film in the entire thing for the bigger budget version. So I can do that too if, if we if. Um, if the studio likes the script and they want to see some visuals, we can send them that and say, okay, if you want me to board out the – give me about a month, and I'll go ahead and board out, like, all the key shots of what we would need for the uh, you know, for the smaller budgeted film and get that ready to go. So, like, it, it, everything should work out pretty well. I think, like, people really go off of visuals these, these days yeah, with the stuff, Yeah, the studio too. executives don't read. They want to look at the pictures. <laughs> That's so pathetic. <laughs> 25 years ago, they read scripts. Mm. Yeah, yeah, not they, anymore. They have people they did, for but. that. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, you'd you'd have you'd, you'd have uh, 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 interns to write coverage, you know. But, yeah, and at we, least even they read the coverage. Yeah, we have like. It's true. We have like uh, we have two readers right now that we hired who are college students, and they we whenever we get scripts and because everybody kind of goes through me anyway, so we give them emails and but they both have cell office phones now, so we just tell them here like um if I get anything I'm gonna forward it to you. You guys read everything and just give me a quick summary of what you what you like about it, what you don't like and if it fits into what we're looking at doing. Like right now we're um at Robots of Awesome we're actually optioning female lead driven action type films, kind of like female versions of Taken. Is what they're looking for, and also if we can also so for uh, we're looking at films that we can that we can pitch to the uh, um, Asian and uh, East Indian film markets. Great. So a couple of my friends actually sent me some stuff with that, and uh, like so yeah, we've been like looking th- looking for some of those, seeing what we want to do, and um, we optioned two films so far. We're hoping to get two more done before the end of the year and uh, start filming pretty hopefully in the next couple of months. So it's not now it's just like contract signing stuff. So like you know the lawyers will say okay we want to have these things but take these things out of it. Then we get it and then we say okay well we like what you're saying here but we want to add these two things back in, and it goes back and forth until everybody's happy and then signs everything and then we'll be good to go. So the neo that uh, Neil is talking about is Neo Edmund, who is the uh, mm-hmm. co-author, the co-creator yeah. of Clan of the Vein. He was the writer, of and you were the artist for it. Yes, and I did. I, I helped him come up with. Well, I did. The, I did the story originally. Uh-huh. Then he came on, helped me do the story and the script, and made it even better. And then, yeah, so I handle all the art packaging. He's he's the head writer of everything. He's the writer. So, yeah, very cool. We have been talking to Neil Demonte, who is a very very busy man in Hollywood right now. Writer, director. Actor, storyboard artist, comic book artist. And caterer. No, and <laughs> not the caterer. <laughs> oh, my cooking's terrible. You'd, you'd, you'd catch botulism or something. If you I know tried what? You can, you can go buy a, you know, a charcuterie plate as well as anyone. <laughs> so you go and can lie and be like, yes, I, I, I made that. <laughs> anyway, but you do almost everything else. 
And that's, that's pretty awesome stuff. I am just, I'm, I'm in awe. This is wonderful stuff. Uh, So we look forward to seeing the, the comic book, the movie, the lunchbox, the poster, the, the mud flaps, the mud flaps, (laughs) Um, figures and the dolls. I'll be playing with them like in the Mel Brooks movie, space balls, (laughs) playing with the action figures. Space balls, the mud flaps. The Funko Pop. <laughs> that would be the coolest thing is having like Funko Pops actually of your figures. I think that'd be freaking that, awesome. Boy, that's that's just the measure of whether you've made it now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Anyway, McBain, the Funko Pop, you heard it here first. Oh, that it would look pretty cute actually. That'd be, that'd be a pretty <laughs> cool. <laughs> anyway, we've been talking with Neil DeMonte. Uh, you are listening to The Event Horizon on Sci-Fi.Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. It has been an exciting, exhilarating... An exhausting hour. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for letting me be a part of your show. I had a great time catching up with both of you again, too. You have been listening to episode 221 of Sci-Fi.Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for Saturday, July 31st, 2021. Our guest this evening has been producer, director, actor, and storyboard artist Neil DeMonte, who is now the creative director at Robots of Awesome, a production company with offices on the Sony Pictures studio lot. This episode will air again on August 1st, 2021 at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern tomorrow afternoon, and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all of the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our own website at sci-fi.radio as podcasts. Sci-fi.radio is listener-supported sci-fi geek culture radio, and the vast majority of our funding comes from listeners just like you. We are asking you to visit patreon.com slash sci-fi radio and pledge $5 a month to help keep the station on the air. Give the gift of geek music to your friends by helping support the world's only full-time sci-fi fandom radio station. That's patreon.com slash sci-fi radio. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by sci-fi illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is copyright 2021 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Sci-Fi.Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>